The History with Jackson podcast. Hello and welcome back to the History with Jackson podcast. I'm your host, Jackson, and we have an awesome episode lined up for you today. But before we jump into that, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting me at History Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts or on the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below if you enjoy listening to content like this episode or any of my other episodes. Now this episode, I am joined by Charles Spicer to talk all about his brand new book, Coffee with Hitler, The British Amateurs Who Tried to Civilise the Nazis. This is an outrageously good book and Charles touched on so many different interesting facets of British relationships with the Nazis. So without further ado, I'll leave you with Charles. So hello and welcome to the History with Jackson podcast. Today we're talking to author and historian Charles Spicer about his brand new book, One World Publications, Coffee with Hitler, the British amateurs who tried to civilise the Nazis. Now I absolutely love this book. Everyone knows that I'm into, uh, into learning about dictators, Hitler, Stalin, and so on. So this was a fantastic opportunity for me. So how are you doing, Charles? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on the podcast. No, it's completely, I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive into your book and discuss some of the, the topics within it. Um, I think it's, a, it's something that we definitely need to have a discussion about in today's climate. You start, I, I, I want to ask this question. I ask, I ask this question to every guest who comes on the podcast. What was the inspiration for this book? Um, I stumbled on some liberal MPs who um, went over to Germany in the mid-30s to meet, um, to meet Hitler. And I was intrigued by them because they didn't fit the remains of the day cliche of the far right of the Conservative Party who had some ideological uh, admiration for the continental Nazis. Um, these guys were pacifists or very keen to avoid war, but very liberal. And, and the most famous of which is, is David Lloyd George. Um, so and, and that took me into an area. And I discovered that, frankly, what little had been written about these activities was um, quite often quite wrong. It's great that you're trying to, to rectify that that part of history. Uh, and then one one person you mentioned in your book, and you you start the book actually by discussing him, is is Philip Cromwell Evans. Um, I'd never heard of this character. I've heard of Lloyd George. I'm sure many of the listeners have. But who was Cromwell Evans, and and why is he so central to this story? Yeah, he, he, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there's three main um, protagonists, but he's probably the most important. And he's an absolutely fascinating figure. And trying to figure out who he was um, became a bit like a sort of detective story for me as a researcher. It was enormous fun in itself. And he's obscure, but not completely unknown. So historians knew that he was the fourth man in the room um, when Hitler and Lloyd George met in September 1936 in, at the Berghof. Uh, the, the, the other person, the third person being Hitler's um, uh, translator, Schmidt. And um, so he'd get one line or a footnote or a, at most a paragraph in books covering the subject. And clearly a number of historians had tried to find out more about him, but had mostly failed. And I, I got lucky. And in particular, I ended up tracking down his, his papers, which had been hidden in a famous historian's archive for over half a century. 
Um, and I think the last time any serious historian met him was before I was born, and I'm I'm in my late fifties. So he it was just um, it was uncovered ground. It was fascinating. Now he in in the end he advised no no fewer than six British prime ministers on their interactions, not all when they were prime minister, but on their interactions with with Germany. He was a historian himself. Um, he came from a very humble background. Um, he was the son of a Welsh tailor, clearly super bright, because he got himself to Oxford at a time when it was difficult from the sort of background to, to get to Oxford, and where he did French and German. So he was fluent in both languages. And as well as being a historian, he was also a political secretary. So he worked in uh, in the House of Commons as a secretary for various committees dealing things like the Balkans. And then he's taken by one of his mentors into, um, oh, he does a PhD at the London School of um, Economics uh, on, about the League of Nations. Um, he'd been a pacifist, conscientious objector in the First World War, so he didn't serve. Um, he was very left wing. He wanted to be a, um, a Labour MP, which, you know, the time, the standards of the time, that put him very far to the left of the political spectrum. Uh, so he's left wing pacifist. This doesn't fulfill the, any of the cliches of the sort of people who were interacting, the Brits who were interacting with, um, with the new um, Nazi regime. It's, I, th- I think there's a really interesting part there about you being a historian and, and finding those stories that people have failed to find. I think that's really fascinating. But he's, he's a really interesting character in that respect, that he's so different from, like you said, those cliches of people interacting with Hitler. And he, he's part of something called the Fellowship. Um, you know, what, what was that Fellowship? Yeah, he, he, he's, he's, he's the secretary of the Anglo-German Fellowship which is this, again, an organization people have known about, but when I dug into it, I discovered that you know, they'd really misrepresented it. Um, it was established in 1935 um, by a man called Ernest Tennant, who recruits Cromwell Evans to come in and do the heavy lifting, as it were. Tennant's a very wealthy businessman, um, veteran of the First World War, was an intelligence officer in the First War, um, his family were the founding family for ICI, the big chemical company. Um, and he he was passionate about trying to stop a second uh, second war um, and sets this organization up funded by big business uh, to really build trade relations. In the early days, it was very much trade and financial relations between Britain's business and British, Britain's um, financial sector with um, with Germany. Um, and he gets Cromwell Evans in to um, to help him build the organisation. And it's 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 really fascinating throughout your book looking at that relationship between Tevin and Cromwell Evans and and watching that fellowship grow. But these men have a, a relationship with some very high ranking Nazi officials. How does this relationship develop and and come to fruition? Well, that and that's that's key part of the story. Um, both of them. Initially, I think through different routes, get to know um, Joachim Ribbentrop um, at a time when he's just a successful businessman. He's a wine and spirits importer and exporter who has met Hitler and becomes a sort of supporter, um, completely untrained as a politician or no experience as a politician or a diplomat. And over time, as, 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 as many of your listeners will know, he persuades Hitler to first appoint him to be the German ambassador to London. 
and then um, you know even more disastrously to um, to be the foreign minister, the German foreign minister. And Comrade Evans and Tennant become so close to Ribbentrop that when they're visiting Berlin, they stay in his house as, as his guests and get to know his wife and his children. Um, very close relationship. And then also they look after him when he comes to, and he's Hitler's first sort of emissary coming to London, even before he's made um, full-time ambassador. He does a number of missions to London. And that's the key relationship. But then from that, they get to know um, they get to know Hitler quite well. But they also, in particular, the, the two his two other deputies, um, Hermann Goering and Rudolf Hess. Like you said, those those points of that relationship developing in Ribbentrop's stint in London uh, and through those numerous visits to Germany, it's it's very when you read in your book, it's very interesting to see the dynamics between the men play out. Uh, and there's and there's one there's one part of this book where. I really want to unpack because there's some there's some names that we recognise uh, from everyday life. Um, so Unilever and and Margarine, you know, they play a role in the early days of this relationship between Nazi Germany and Britain. Can we can we unpack that a bit? Because I think that's that's some those are things that people recognise in everyday life. Yes, well, so the the, the Anglo German Fellowship it starts life in 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 thirty five as very much an an, an, um, an organ of business. Um, industry and finance. Um, and then later on, it becomes much more um, social and political and involves the military. Um, so the membership grows. But initially, the membership is circled around um, uh, a small group of business, businessmen who'd done a trade mission uh, to Germany in 1934. And that included the two senior directors, indeed the chairman uh, of Unilever. And Unilever was a, a recently created merger of Lever Brothers, which was the famous British soap manufacturers, with the um, big Dutch um, uh, yellow fats, so um, uh, butter and margarine giant. Um, and they merged in, I think, 29. And it's a vast international organization um, all over the world. But to give a set of context, just in Germany, it's Anglo-Dutch. Uh, multinational, but it just in Germany it has thirty six thousand uh, employees in a hundred different subsidiaries. Its sales of margarine into um, uh, into Germany are worth in modern pri- modern prices about a billion a year. So, and it lost a lot, or particularly Lever Brothers had lost a lot of their um, uh, businesses during the First World War. The First World War had been disastrous for um, their, their German uh, subsidiaries, which had been um, seized. And with the success of their business in Germany, the last thing they wanted is, is this happening again. So they offered to fund, um, along with ICI and um, a handful of other businesses, they fund the setting up of the Anglo-German Fellowship, and indeed host the board meetings in their wonderful building, which still exists on the Thames, sort of Art Deco Palace on on Black Blackfriars Bridge. And I, I really like how I've seen how there's a there's a cross section of society being involved in this. There's there's people who are involved in politics, people who are involved in business. It's very interesting to see that play out. And across these meetings, we're seeing, you know, an exposure of these these people in the fellowship, particularly Conwell, Evans, and, and Tennant to the Nazi leadership. Now, during their trips to to Germany, they're they're exposed to Nazi politicians talking about Nazi policies, uh, and particularly anti-Jewish legislation. Now, how did they 
feel about about this and and how was their feedback to Britain received and their interactions with Nazi officials afterwards? Oh, that's a that's a complex question, but I'll do my best to answer it. I mean, just going back to the sub the, the, the subtitle of my book, the British amateurs who tried to civilize the Nazis, and we 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 came up with this word "civilized" to sort of separate it from the appeasement. Um, because they really did think that by doing business with them, by doing um, uh, uh, financing the German economy, which was our biggest trade and financial partner on the continent, so the biggest economy on the continent, uh, continent at the time. So it couldn't be ignored. Um, we had full diplomatic relations. But, um, and then they set up a whole lot of social interactions with them going, going in both directions. That their their, um, their ambition was to civilize the, the Nazis. They they weren't naive. They re- realized it was a brutal um, regime and had and that Hitler had 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 assumed power only nominally through diplomatic processes. There'd been a lot of sort of thuggery. They knew what the SA were like, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And um, as the specific point of the um, t- treatment of the German Jews, um, they. They thought that was fundamentally uncivilized. They thought it was a um, uh, a bad idea, and they were appalled by the um, uh, by the Nuremberg laws when they're proposed in the um, in the autumn of 1935. And they challenge the German leadership, and this is what he discovered: found the communications, the records. They challenged the the Nazi leadership about their um, their policies privately um, and, and had sort of fierce arguments with them, which is very interesting. I mean, you know, um, they weren't used, to, the Nazis weren't used to having their friends, supposed friends, um, challenging them on this. And, and they did so, you know, both on a moral grounds, just they didn't think it was appropriate. It was, a, you know, appalling um, but also the, on the basis that it was, you know, it was bad for business. It, it was not painting the regime in a positive light um, internationally. When you read those through your book, you, it's very, it's so fascinating seeing those discussions happen uh, and seeing those arguments happen. What were these? I know we're talking about how they're they're very intense arguments, but what were these arguments like um, for for these men? Oh, I think they got very upset. I mean, you got you know people storming out of meetings and stuff like that. What they never did until Kristallnacht, until November 1938, they didn't publicly um, condemn. And you might argue that they should have done. Um, but I think their defence would be, you know, if, if they'd gone public, they would have shattered this these organisations they'd set up. Um, which importantly become very useful intelligence gathering. And a key part of, a key theme of the book is, is charting when this initially very pro-German group of Brits, when they realise that the, 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 the Nazi regime is beyond redemption, um, they don't just give up, they don't shut down, they use all these um, connections they have to gather intelligence on the regime and advise the British government on taking a much sterner line a much harder line um so that is a sort of fascinating to me at least um aspect of the book is as how they having been such sort of passionate we've got to um uh, bring these guys into the fold of civilized europe they realized it's it was it was unachievable um and then 
Chamberlain and his government are busy appeasing like anything. So you get this sort of wonderful, bizarre disconnect from that point of view, if I'm making sense. No, no, I, I, that was leading into my next really, question, really. How does the establishment, the British government, receive this intelligence that's coming back to them? How do they react to it? And that's and that, that evolves and is a fascinating part. You know, the, 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 the terrifying irony is in the early days when they are urging, by then it, it was well, initially the MacDonald and then the Baldwin government in the UK, they're saying, look, you've got to engage with, with this, with, with Germany. And it's, it's a fascinating um, fact that Hitler had been in power for two years before any British um, politician, senior government, government representative, went to, went to see him. Now, we had full diplomatic relations. It wasn't a conscious, you know, we're avoiding this regime because we disapprove of it. Baldwin famously didn't like um, foreign affairs and he just didn't want anything to do with it. Um, my guys were saying, you need to get out there. You need to go and meet um, uh, Hitler. There was even talk of whether Hitler would come to London at various times. And until Anthony Eden goes, and he was relatively junior, you don't get anyone going out for two years, um, which really alienated the, um, uh, the Nazi leadership because they admired Britain. They aspired to be like the British. They felt we were their cousins. And so they're pretty offended by this. So the first couple of years of the organization, they're saying, you know, for goodness sake, get out there, see them, make your own mind up, try and, you know, build some form of connections which will will um, improve relations. So we don't, we aren't on a path towards war. And then you get a change of government with Chamberlain coming in, what, early 37. And um, he he suddenly gets very enthusiastic about appeasing Nazi Germany. By which time my guys are saying, no, that, that isn't going to work, or at least not his style of appeasement. Um, they weren't suggesting that we should immediately launch an attack, but they were saying we need to be much better coordinated with our French and potentially US allies. We need to bring them together. We need to speak with a common voice. Um, we need to be much firmer when, as in our response to each of um, Hitler's um, Saturday shockers, you know, when he when he first goes into the Rhineland and then Austria and then Czechoslovakia. It's it's very frustrating seeing how these men are, are feeding back something and having a different response to it. Yeah, you know, I can I can sense these men's frustration through your writing. But I, I want to talk about probably the most senior, one of the most senior people to to visit Hitler, uh, and that's that's David Lloyd George. You know, what happens in this in this meeting and how is it received? You know, his meeting with with Hitler has has been written about quite extensively, as you can imagine, by all his biographers, and there've been some sort of specialist publications. And I got absolutely fascinated, and and it's where the title of the book comes from. You know, he goes for coffee with Hitler, and it's what I discovered is it was it was it was this Anglo-German fellowship lot who persuaded him to go, and then made all the arrangements. Um, it wasn't done through the. I mean, he was the former British Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister who'd famously won won the the First World War. Um, he at that point he wasn't a uh, minister. He wanted to join the cabinet, but had pretty poor relations with Baldwin and Chamberlain, so he didn't get back into the cabinet. Um, but he was a leading. He was the father of the House and the House of Commons. He was a very well respected uh, political titan, frankly. If, um, when a lot of them were. British politicians, in my mind, view pygmies. He was sort of grand old man. So he was by far the most senior British politician um, to go out when he went out. 
And I mean, he's grimly fascinated by um, Hitler. You could argue they're both somewhat demagogic. Um, he and he absolutely charms Hitler, who absolutely hero worships him, particularly for his success in the First World War. Um, and all he wants to do is talk about the different tactics, and they end up going down to sort of who was in which trench at which point of the war and all that sort of stuff. They go into a lot of detail, and um, uh, Lloyd George really tries to charm Hitler. Um, and some people, and particularly Churchill, who was his good friend, soon after said he was guilty of enormous naivety, and which never rang true for me because, you know, Lloyd George had many failings, but he wasn't naive. He was very wily. So, and a couple of other historians had said, surely he was playing a smarter game than people gave him credit for. Um, but he, he does go out and it's a very successful trip. It's the high point of Anglo-German relations in the Nazi period. Um, Hitler's delighted. He wants closer relationships, obviously on his own terms and probably such terms would be completely unacceptable. But he, he is he's very pro-British after that um, uh, visit. And Lloyd George initially thinks, you know, there's something that can be done. That relationship and that meeting was, as you say, it's fascinating seeing those two men interact. But the meeting's very different to another meeting with a British politician with Hitler, which is Lord Halifax's meeting. How how is Halifax's meeting different, and what what happens in that meeting? Well, Halifax goes out, and I very much compare. You know, he has a chapter, and I compare and contrast the two meetings. He goes out pretty much exactly a year later, so late thirty seven. And he he is um, Lord President of the Council, so he's in the cabinet. Um, he is about to be made. He's about to replace Eden as Foreign Secretary, but he's not quite Foreign Secretary. And it's you often see that you know people think he was Foreign Secretary when he went. He wasn't. He was about two or three months off from being promoted, but it was sort of in the in the pipeline. And. Lloyd George's meeting was actually organised with the blessing of, of Baldwin, a lot of coordination with Downing Street, but quietly, discreetly. Um, uh, one, a couple of um, Baldwin's aides go with Lloyd George, indeed, um, the doc, Lord uh, Dawson of Penn, um, the Prime Minister and the King's doctor go on that trip with Lloyd George and, um, uh, and, and, and one other. Um, the Halifax meeting is at the prompting of the, um, the government needs someone senior to go out there, the British government, but most bizarrely aren't prepared to do it officially. So they have to set up a, um, uh, a way of doing it so it's plausibly deniable that it's not an official visit. So they come up with this cock and bull concept of Lord Halifax going out for a hunting exhibition that's being held in Berlin. Um, where the British have, it's an international hunting exhibition where the British have a stand, including heads of beasts that have been shot by the king and the queen sort of um, on, on safari and stuff like that. And it's the most bizarre piece of diplomatic nonsense you could imagine. Um, so Halifax, you know, who's former, he's been, um, uh, uh, he, he's been the, um, uh, you know, he's, he was in charge of um, India, Viceroy of India, so that's a term I'm looking for. He's been Viceroy, he's extremely senior, um, uh, an experienced politician and diplomat. And he goes out supposedly to go and see a few you know, Maldives stags heads in a, in a hunting exhibition. And when the press say, you're going to meet a Herr Hitler, 
Um, the answer is, oh, well, if, 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 if both diaries can be made to align, possibly. And of course, the whole thing is, and, and, and Halifax makes this awkward journey down to Baptist Garden, which is a long way south of, um, uh, it's almost on the, uh, on the Austrian border. So it's a hell of a journey. It's a sort of day and a half by train from, um, from Berlin in those days. And, and goes to see and has the most awkward meeting with um, Hitler imaginable. So the contrast, um, Hitler doesn't really want to see him. Uh, they couldn't be more different. Um, Halifax is enormously tall. Um, and, and he's a sort of, um, Hitler calls him the English parson. Um, Lloyd George like, says it was like, and with another clerical illusion, says it was like sending a curate to visit a tiger. And the, Halifax is horrified by um, Hitler and all the things he says. They don't, un, they don't speak each other's languages, so it's all going through translators. Um, they have a disgusting lunch, and um, it's very uncomfortable. It's very cold. Lord Halifax has to wear two sweaters because he gets so cold on the train going down there. And the whole thing's, frankly, a disaster. Um, does nothing to improve, um, improve relations. It's so interesting seeing that develop and those that that that, com, uh, that contrast between Lloyd George and the the hero worshipping to a really quite disastrous poor meeting. And I think to be clear, I mean the point being is in that year Hitler's attitude towards Britain fundamentally changed. You know, in in sort of mid thirty seven, he 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 goes from being uh, very pro English to saying that Britain is 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 Germany's you know number one enemy. Um, and, and he's, he's turning by the time that Halifax, so, um, so it's, it's visceral, it's personal at that point. I want, I want to kind of switch back now to the the fellowship and the, the men in the fellowship. At this point, some of the members of the fellowship are beginning to take on unpleasant views, you know, different to Conwell, uh, Conwell Evans and and Tennant. How does this happen? And, And can you tell us about some of these, these views? Well, I mean, taking a step back, um, a lot of historians had assumed that the Anglo-German Fellowship was a pro-Nazi and therefore almost certainly anti-Semitic organisation, um, that you, along with Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists or the Right Club, there's something called the Nordic League, there were the Britons. There was a whole bunch of really, really unpleasant far-right um, neo-Nazi, neo-fascist organisations. And a lot of historians who haven't looked at it in that much detail assume that it sort of sits, maybe not quite as extreme, but it's in that spectrum. And what I basically try to show in the book is it was a much more mainstream. You know, after his trip, Halifax comes, you know, um, comes to the Christmas dinner and gives the, 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 um, the, the Christmas speech. And it has... The great and the good. I, I was the first person to discover the membership list, and it's the great and the good. It's a very respectable, as well as all these respectable organisations who finance it. The, the seven hundred individual members are mostly very respectable, but inevitably, any pro-German organisation attracts those people whose, for whatever reasons, um, share the, 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 the repellent views of, 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 of the, uh, the ideo- repellent ideologies of, of the Nazi regime. And what I did was an enormous amount of work, um, actually, before I wrote the book as part of a PhD, to, to really analyse to what extent that was um, uh, they ruled the roost and concluded that they were never really more than about 5%, because other historians have done excellent work looking on the 
um, the far right, you know, fellow travelers of the right, um, Richard Griffiths, he does a trilogy of books on this and, and other historians have, have built on that. So it's quite well understood which Brits in the 1930s were rapidly pro-Nazi. You know, we have their names and addresses. So it's quite easy to, so once you have the two lists and, and, and is to collate them and you get this small group of um, uh, very unpleasant um, individuals who try to organize a coup. They try to take over the um, Anglo-German fellowship and make it an avowedly pro-Nazi organization. They're, they're shocked by its, moder its moderation. Um, and they, they, they attempt to coup, but, but they do fail. Again, like seeing those different views within that organization really shows you how polarized the opinion on Germany at this point was, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and you've got the full spectrum from, um, I think the one thing that m most of the membership have is, is they're, they're Germanophiles. A lot of the older people had, had, had been to university in Germany in the sort of in the 1890s. Um, Heidelberg University, which is one of the great universities, had a lot of Brits who went there and did postgraduate work. So a lot of the membership and including Ernest Tennant, um, uh, Conwell Evans and another of my sort of three, the third of my three protagonists, um, uh, Graham Christie, they're all fluent German speakers. So there's a shared, you know, a lot of them had spread there. Um, and, you know, in a way, the royal patron was 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 um, the Prince of Wales, as he then was, um, who'd spent his holidays before the First World War. Um, you know, the Queen was um, was German. There was there were all these family connections. So that's something you do have in common. So just a natural cousinhood with Germany, um, which hadn't been completely shattered by the First World War, although clearly that was very damaging for relationships. But they were building, you know, during the Weimar era, relations between the two countries were building very nicely. Um, during that period, the City of London was the main source of finance for rebuilding Germany, Germans' um, uh, economy. None of this was ideological. And you know, that natural kinship uh, is... You know, when it's see, when you see it playing out in these meetings, see it playing out in people's opinion of Germany. Uh, it's it's fascinating to read and how that played a role in in policy and how that played a role in business as well. Now, I have one question about Conwell Evans here and and Czechoslovakia. So, what what happened between Germany and Czechoslovakia, and how does this affect Conwell Evans's tone feeling? towards Germany? Well, it, it's a complicated story, but essentially, Conwell Evans is very sceptical about the whole situation by, by, um, by the summer of 38. And at that point, he is, um, he's wearing a number of different hats. He's um, initially working very closely with a group of um, resistors to Hitler, German resistors to Hitler, the so-called Oster Conspiracy, which is named after Colonel Hans Oster, who is a, um, a senior German army officer who realizes that Hitler's um, on a path to hell because he plans to attack Czechoslovakia. And he reaches out in the modern sense to, through Conwell Evans and, and his colleagues to the British government to say, look, we think it's now time to um, depose um, uh, Hitler. And, 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 and have a replacement um, German government. If we did so, 
please could you um, give us um, political um, respectability, um, diplomatic um, acknowledgement? Because if you if you replace a rogue state with another rogue state, you're arguably in an even worse situation. And it's a fascinating conspiracy. Of people mostly know that forty four the von Stauffenberg the bomb much better. This one, to my mind, is much more significant in a sense because if it had succeeded, it would have made much more difference to twentieth century history for obvious reasons because it's six years earlier. And the tragedy is that they, it had a very good chance of success. Obviously, there were lots of crazy plots against Hitler. And some of them were, you know, a lone person with a gun or a bomb or whatever. And Hitler seemed to be very lucky and they avoided them all. But some of them were, you know, didn't have much chance of success. In this instance, they had the entire Berlin police force ready and waiting to support a coup uh, or support the arrest of Hitler. And they also had all the um, army units in the north around Berlin who would support it, which must have given them a good chance of success. But in order to give it moral authority, they needed Hitler, as he was planning to do, to attack or start his attack on Czechoslovakia. So um, at that sense, Conrad Evans wanted him to attack because that was the casus belli that would have justified this coup, which had a big, big chance of success. Meanwhile, you've got Chamberlain, who entirely on his own, advised really by no one, maybe a bit of Horace Wilson, but not from the Foreign Office at all, not listening to his wider advisers, um, comes up with this idea, Plan Z, of him jumping on a plane with his umbrella and going, um, talking man to man with Hitler, which, which, which was a a brave, creative, and incredibly foolish idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's easy to sort of paint Chamberlain in, in a very negative light. You've got to admire his chutzpah, but it was just not thought through. And he knew, and he'd been advised by Common Evans and others, that there was this idea of trying to organise a coup. Um, and this just pulled the rug from underneath their feet. Um, it, 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 it was a disaster for that coup, which was probably the last, well, it was, I think, the last pre-war, serious pre-war attempt to unseat Hitler. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with uh, that, that assessment of Plan Z there. You know, um, noble uh, from Chamberlain, of course, but yeah. yeah, probably not the best of his ideas during that period. Now, I have a, a final fun question for you, as we do here with every guest on the History of Jackson podcast. Now, you, you have a career away from history. What was your favourite thing about coming back to history and researching and writing? Well, Jackson, I, I have to admit, I'm, I'm, I'm so old that um, when I did my undergraduate history degree, the, um, the internet didn't exist. <laughs> so the, the breadth of resources now available to historians, um, and I, obviously I spent a lot of time buried in archives. I loved old-fashioned archival research, handling original documentation, finding things that have been missed in it, at the National Archive or the, chain, uh, the, the Churchill um, College archives, finding Cole Levin's papers, burrowing through the student reports in the London School of Economics. That was all fantastic. But there's also a lot of very, very good material on, online and collating a complicated set of, of information now with the technologies we have available. Um, it was great fun. And, and I've, I think I used it in my acknowledgements. It was a case of teaching an old dog new tricks. Um, and I found that very, um, very energizing. 
Yeah, as, as as nothing beats an old archive, but sometimes you do need you do need the internet to help, don't you? <laughs> well, the, the internet lets you make connections. So you want to find out about Commel Evans and Lloyd George, you put them both into the same search engine. And the, the search engines over the last, you know, the, the Google, you know, it just got so much better. You'll find those connections and it will take you through to academic papers, not some, you know, poor quality. Um, so I think that, that, and that's that's improved just in the last six, seven years, hugely. Oh, I, I certainly agree. I've, I've found that within my own research and writing, that it does streamline that process a lot more. Obviously, I I really really enjoyed your book. I I can't recommend it enough to our listeners. But where can people grab a copy of your book? But also interact with you online. Um, well, the the hardback came out just over a year ago, and the paperback came out two weeks ago. And I have to say, the um, the mainstream uh, UK. Uh, it's also there's a US edition for your US um, listeners, but the. Um, the UK paperback is available in all good bookshops. That's a cliche, but um, Waterstones, Daunt's, Blackwell's, um, also on, on, on Amazon if you must. But um, it's uh, and, and lots of smaller bookshops that do support smaller bookshops. In terms of interacting with me, um, again, in, uh, <laughs> I discovered, which I didn't really know until recently, that there's a very supportive and engaged history reading and writing community on Twitter. And I think of the social platforms, uh, I think it's the it's the most, um, I hope it doesn't get too disrupted under its new ownership. Um, it, people are really supportive, sharing books they've enjoyed. And if people contact me on that, I always respond. Um, if they contact me about history, there's certain things they're selling, I'm, I'm perhaps less so. But um, I've really enjoyed, I, I'm doing a bunch of readings. I've done um, uh, literary festivals history festivals i've done trips to you know a lot of interaction with um uh, upper sixth um uh part of the a levels syllabus it works well as a book and also you know um undergraduates looking at that period seem to in, in, enjoy the book and in, in, engage with it so i'm very happy doing talks about that sort of thing so um as a first time author i you know i'm i'm uh, I'll go anywhere they want if people have a genuine interest in the book because it's been so much fun engaging and discovering just how enthusiastic the history reading um, community is. And I, I will agree with the cliche: you are in all good bookshops. I've gone in many bookshops for the past couple of weeks, and I've I've seen your book your book on every shelf. Um, but you you really are very active on on Twitter or whatever we're calling it now, um, and it's great to interact with you on there and see your see your things. So I thoroughly recommend following. Charles on on Twitter as well. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and, and, and you coming to talk about your book. Oh, brilliant. Well, thank you, Jackson, for having me. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of History with Jackson with Charles Spicer. Now, I, I must say, this book is absolutely amazing. And I really think you should go and get a copy of it and interact with Charles online because he's brilliant and that, and that book is just awesome. Now, in the meantime, if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider supporting me through the Buy Me A Coffee profile in the description below or through History of Jackson Plus on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we have got another great episode lined up. I know you're going to enjoy it, and I look forward to seeing you all then. <laughs>